welcome. It's a new year, it's a new you, and it's a new oncology for the inquisitive mind. At least when it comes to the intro, we've got a brand spiffing new intro for this, what we're calling season two of this show, but the rest of it is both reused and recycled. I'm one half of your host, Michael Fernando, and I say that not because I have been cleft in twain, but because my other half, still sadly stuck 500 miles away, is Josh Hurwitz. Josh, happy 2024, happy almost end of our clinical year, which formally ends in February. How are you, my friend? You always are a tour de force when it comes to introducing our episodes, Michael. Well done. And time. It's been about 30 seconds and we've already (laughs) shoehorned tour de force into an episode. Every episode. And we're up to, what is it, 98? But I'm doing well. Uh, Thank you for scripting my section of this introduction. And I would like to tell our listeners exactly what you wrote, which is, I quote, I'm very lonely, Mikey, quippity quip, whippity wit, banter, banter, etc. <laughs> you never cease to amuse. And obviously, you can tell me what my intellect is, but I think I'm quite a funny guy. Uh, but to answer your... Well, I, th- I think I, I, think I um, summarized you as a person quite, quite well there, Josh. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the rest of your family has preceded you down to Melbourne, but... Um... But yes, quippity quip and uh, witty witty. Witty witty. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing really well. Uh, I think as many of you and Michael just alluded to and could potentially can empathise, medicine can be such a monat- nomadic profession, making, you know, you move from town to town, city to city, you take a job wherever you can get it, you drag your family, kids, loved ones around Australia, America, the world, wherever you end up being. And today marks my last weekend in sunny Sydney before moving to the coffee centre of the universe, Melbourne, where Michael and I can finally record in person in the bitter cold where wind, hail, sunshine and probably another lockdown around the corner keeps us very, very close. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. Uh, In case you haven't been able to tell, we've been doing this show. We've been doing it for, what, a year and a half now, Josh? And right from the start, it has been over Zoom. I think there was one or two episodes that we recorded together up in Sydney when I was visiting, but it will be so much fun to actually be in the same room. Uh, And so we are looking forward to it a lot. Josh, we've, uh, we've said before on the show that we are masters of the misdirection. We set things up one way and then take our listeners in the complete opposite direction. And I think it's time, Josh, for one of my famous impersonations, namely that of Al Pacino. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. That's that's not true. We're terrible at deception, although we are better at impersonating one of the great actors of the Hollywood golden era. But for all our spiffy new intro and New Year's resolutions, most of which, let's be honest, they're probably broken already, we're going to start our broadcasting for 2024 by talking about 2023. That's right, we're doing a year in retrospect for 2023, let it let it never be said that there is a trend that we cannot follow. Yep, that's exactly it. It's like Back to the Future too. Michael, you do great impersonations as well. Yeah, although speaking of Back to the Future, I think my Al Pacino was veering into Christopher Lloyd a little bit there. <laughs> anyway, so for this episode, which we're going to classify on, under our spotlight label, because we're nothing if not a gigantic pu- record publishing conglomerate, we're going to shine a spotlight on the last 365 days. And we thought we would look at some of the best studies of the year, at least in our opinion. 
So, Josh, do you want to say what we mean by the best studies of 2023? Because best, obviously, is a bit of a loaded word. We almost got through the introduction without out having to do any edits, Michael. Almost. Just so close. Almost. Uh, so, what, what Almost. we mean by best studies is that, you know, best is a loaded word and everyone's going to have a different, different interpretation of what they believe is best. For us, I guess the list means the studies that struck a chord with us and by our estimation have had the best chances of changing the oncological practice for the long haul in either a small cohort of patients or potentially a large cohort of patients, but areas of need, areas of massive change and things that we think will help steer the pathway to a better future for clinicians and patients. Absolutely. And it will surprise no one, given who is involved in this podcast, that our top study for 2023 involves an antibody drug conjugate. Yay. (laughs) So, Josh, without further ado, do you want to get us started on our list of the top five studies of 2023? Coming in at number five is the three-year survival with Tibentavast in previously untreated metastatic uveal melanoma in a phase three trial. Summarize the background, it's a very rare cancer, it's less than 5% of all melanomas, and it doesn't respond very well to classic immunotherapy. 85% 85% are ocular in nature, and prior to the approval of Tibentafast, median overall survival was terrible. Tibentafast as a drug is a first positive phase three study in this space. That's how rare it is. It's a T-cell engager designed to redirect those nifty T-cells to something called a glycoprotein 100 positive melanocyte cells that is presented by HLA-A02 to cell surfaces, which you need to be positive for in order to be a potential candidate for this drug. The randomization, you had to have the HLA typing I just mentioned. You had to have no prior systemic therapy. It was randomized two to one to the intervention drug of Tibentafast or the investigator choice. The results were pretty good. So three-year overall survival was maintained with a median overall survival of 21.6 months versus 16.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.68. So over 30% of benefit versus what was the standard of care. The median duration of response was over 11 months and the disease control rate was 46 versus 27%. So overall benefit was seen in patients with best overall response of uh, disease and it was a hazard ratio of 0.62, as I mentioned. Looking at the exploratory analysis, 123 patients were evaluated for ctDNA, the holy grail of figuring out if someone's responding to treatment, and 88% of these patients had a reduction at week 9. And 37% had a total clearance of ctDNA at week 9, and this correlated with survival pretty strongly with 70% correlation, so a hazard ratio of 0.32. From a safety profile, it was overall relatively well-tolerated, with a low rate of discontinuation. And the big one was the essentially the cytokine release syndrome leading to hypotension. And most patients in Australia are admitted at least for their first cycle to ensure that it's managed appropriately. Michael, take two. What's our number four? So very good summary, Josh. And the main thing we the main reason we picked this is because, as Josh mentioned at the top, it is an area where there are almost no treatment options. Definitely something that we will be looking at. And Josh already uses Tibentafast quite commonly in his practice. I have seen ocular melanoma much less frequently, but 
certainly something that will permeate uh, oncological treatment going forward. Our number four study for 2023 is the FLORA2 trial. This is a phase three study that examines the combination of osimertinib, one of the first sort of real trailblazers of the targeted therapy genre, as it were. One of the first pillars of the targeted therapy, osimertinib, in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy. So the background for FLORA2 is that there are several clinical factors for poor prognosis, EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, and that's the presence of CNS-METs, and an L858R mutation as opposed to an exon 9 deletion. There was a phase 2 OPAL study in Japanese patients that demonstrated encouraging activity when osimertinib was combined with platinum-based chemotherapy with pemetrexed. This was a global open-label randomized phase 3 study that enrolled 551 people. To get onto the study, you had to have pathologically confirmed non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer with an exon 19 deletion or an L858R mutation. You had to have a good ECOG status, as all of these studies do. You had to have no prior systemic therapy for advanced disease, and you had to have, if you did have uh, CNS METs, they had to be stable, and there was a mandated CT or MRI brain at baseline, which is very reasonable for lung cancer. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive osimertinib plus or minus platinum plus pemetrexid. And the chemotherapy component was uh, maintained for the first four cycles, and then pemetrexed uh, maintenance along with the osimertinib was continued indefinitely. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoints being overall survival, objective response rate, duration of response, disease control rate, safety, and health-related quality of life, all of the usual good things. So jumping straight ahead to the results, as we called it last year, and Josh, we're going to have to find another word for this, but we called it the juicy part in 2023. We're going to have to think of something new and shiny for 2024. The progression-free survival by investigator had a hazard ratio of 0.62, with a median progression-free survival of 25.5 versus 16.7 months. The two-year PFS rate was 57 versus 41%, and the results were similar regardless of local or blinded independent central review. The benefit was consistent across all predefined subgroups. Specifically looking at patients with CNS-METs, the benefit appeared to be maintained with a PFS of 24.9 versus 13.8 months and a hazard ratio of 0.47. So numerically, at least, it seems like regardless of whether you have brain METs or not, your progression-free survival is the same. The benefit was likewise maintained regardless of your EGFR mutation. So exon 19 deletion, hazard ratio of 0.6. L858R mutation, hazard ratio of 0.63. What has kept this from being higher up this list is the PFS2 and the overall survival data are both immature, with the overall survival data in both groups not being reached, which is the hazard ratio of 0.9. So time will tell that whether this is an approach that we'll be able to use long-term and will provide a long-term benefit. In terms of compliance, the duration of osimertinib exposure obviously was longer in the chemotherapy arm, and 76% of patients completed four cycles of platinum plus pemetrexid. Of course, there were higher rates of adverse events in the combination arm, with the majority having higher rates of hematological toxicity and nausea in particular. We always talk about ILD when you're combining a TKI with any other agent. Uh, but it was reported in nine patients in the combo arm and 10 patients in the monotherapy arm, indicating that combining osimertinib with chemotherapy doesn't appear to increase this risk significantly. So Josh, potentially a new first-line treatment, sort of a variation on a theme of what we already do, just adding chemotherapy, but promising nonetheless. 
it's a compelling idea, isn't it? Combining chemotherapy with an already fantastic existing drug. And while it might not suit everyone, my prediction is that if we get an overall survival benefit, those that are young, fit and healthy, like many of the people who have an EGFR mutation, would likely benefit from the combination therapy. There you are. You heard it here first. Josh, do you want to take us to number three? Number three, Michael. We, we complement each other, don't we? I'm going to talk about indigo, which is investigating voracidinib in glioma. I love this study because brain tumors are just so difficult to treat, but it was a phase three randomized double-blinded study of voracidinib versus placebo in those with residual or recurrent grade two gliomas with an IDH1 slash two mutation. The results, while interim, were astounding. They were sensational. That's how good they were. The progression-free survival showed a hazard ratio of 0.39, which is statistically significant, and the placebo group even offered crossover. So it was probably better than that. The inclusion criteria were, were those that had a WHO grade 2 IDH mutant diffuse glioma, not in need of immediate chemo or radiotherapy. So essentially someone who wasn't about to hemorrhage or have an intracranial event. The background is that most low-grade gliomas in adults recur early in disease status with a median age of 40. And that's tough, right? Because a lot of them do recur. So the treatment is very much maximum safe resection is the first treatment then post-off chemotherapy with radiotherapy in the grade three and grade four tumors, which is usually not curative, not even in the grade two tumors, which carries risks of short and long-term toxicities. When we talk about the isocitrate dehydrogenase, which is that IDH, it's occurs in various cancers, including gliomas, and mutations result in overproduction of a special drug that Michael's written called, oh no, a special enzyme called R2-hydroxyglutarate that inhibits lots of enzymes as epigenetic dysregulation, impaired cellular differentiation, immunosuppressive tumor microenvironments. As a summary, it causes bad things, lots of bad things everywhere. And so what is voracidinib? It inhibits IDH1 and IDH2. It's got good brain penetrance. It's potently known to reduce the 2-HG enzyme, which is amazing, by up to 90% in resected grade 2 and grade 3 non-enhancing diffuse glioblastomas. The trial design, you had to be greater than 12 years of age. You had to have the IDH mutation. It had to have a grade 2 oligodendroglioma or astrocytoma, and you could have had prior surgery. There was also the non-enhancing disease. You had to have one lesion that measured at least one centimeter and not in need of immediate chemo or radiotherapy. Primary endpoint, progression-free survival. Secondary endpoint, time to next intervention, i.e. next cancer therapy. 21% discontinued the voracidinib and 41% in the control arm, predominantly due to disease progression in that control arm. And the follow-up was 14 months. The primary endpoint or the progression-free survival showed a median PFS of 27.7 months not reached, first 11 months in the placebo arm with another wonderful, statistically significant, sensational, exhilarating hazard ratio of 0.39. And the time to next intervention showed that voracidinib was not reached. So they just continued getting the treatment. They were doing really well versus 17.8 months in placebo and a hazard ratio of 0.26. Another commanding lead for voracidinib. I'm trying a lot of synonyms here, Michael, and we can choose one for the next year. 
I'm just waiting until you uh, call it a tour de force, Josh. I've already said it once. I, I have to figure out another French sort of idiom to use and not steal it from you. That's the other thing I need. Uh, so, so the probability of not receiving a subsequent anti-cancer treatment at 24 months in the forest synonym was 83% versus 27%. So essentially, you're delaying time to any subsequent therapy. There were more toxicities in vorasidinib arm, 38 versus 22%, and most common was some liver enzyme dysfunction, but all re- reversible. Michael, I know I'm the brains of this tour de force, this dynamic duo. That you, you are, know, Josh. This, <laughs> that I am. But why don't we look at the monarchy? I mean, it's probably it's not the monarchy anymore. What is the monarchy? You know, we've got King Charles now, who recently had some surgery for his prostate. I wonder what that shows. And this has nothing to do with the next trial, but it was just a fact. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh is out of practice with his segues. So don't worry, it will get better throughout the year. Number two on our list uh, for 2023 is an update from Monarch E, which is the study of adjuvant abemocyclid plus endocrine therapy for hormone receptor positive HER2 negative high-risk early breast cancer. This was a pre-planned overall survival interim analysis, including five-year efficacy outcomes. So the background, node positive early breast cancer has a high risk of recurrence, up to 30% at five years. Monarchy was designed to evaluate two years of adjuvant abemocyclib to endocrine therapy in hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, node positive, high risk early breast cancer. Abemocyclib is now a globally approved standard of care adjuvant treatment for high risk early breast cancer and received an NCC and CAT1 rating in this setting. At the time this update was released, there was an access program in Australia, but it recently got the nod as an official entrant to the PBS club. I will mention the high-risk early breast cancer criteria. Patients with early breast cancer that have at least four positive nodes or have one to three positive nodes in a combination with either a grade three disease, a tumor of at least five centimeters, or centrally assessed T67 status greater than 20% positivity in tumor cells. So let's go straight to the results. The pre-specified overall survival interim analysis at five years involved a median follow-up time of 54 months, which is four and a half years. All patients are off abemocyclid because they capped it at two years. And greater than 80% of patients have been followed for at least two years since completing their adjuvant CDK46. There was a sustained invasive disease-free survival benefit in the intention-to-treat population with a hazard ratio of 0.68 with a continuing separation of the curves. This was consistent across all subgroups. The line of equivalence did cross one in patients greater than 80 years old with an ECOG performance status of one, grade one pathology, and a stage two primary. So basically, more frail patients who are less likely to be able to tolerate a bemocyclid or patients with lower grade pathology that were already probably going to do well. There was also a sustained distant recurrence-free survival uh, benefit in the intention-to-treat population with a hazard ratio of 0.675. The overall survival data, amazingly after five years, are still immature, and this really speaks to how good aromatase inhibitors are in these patients. The hazard ratio is 0.9. 03 with a p-value of 0.28. However, there is cause for optimism because the curves appear to be starting to separate. This will still require years and years of follow-up, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for countries to start to approve this treatment before we have this definitive data because our treatment for breast cancer is already so good. 
The safety signals were unchanged from previous. We know that abemacyclib has significant GI toxicity, so something to consider for your patients, particularly if they're older or more frail. But Josh, certainly something that is not just going to be a standard of care treatment, but is a standard of care treatment across the world and most relevant to you and me in Australia as of right now. Yeah, that that's that's a great summary. And I think, you know, it probably would have almost been close to number one, but number one was, you know, practice changing. Number two is practice changing, but we already have incredible, sensational, optimistic, fundamentally pushing that dial in the right direction. I'm going to stop, but this is, Josh, you know, it's a great trial, Josh, Michael. And- Josh, Josh, please put down the thesaurus. <laughs> no, I, I need it. I've got a big one in my hand. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I think if we can save 30% of those women from having metastatic disease or more, then we've done something really, really positive for both the healthcare system, but more importantly for the patient and their family. Because a lot of the time, these patients are younger, they have aggressive disease, you know, they, we've got great treatments, but this just is a seismic shift in sort of how we look at cancer and how we should probably start looking at all our cancer types, looking for ways to reduce risk of recurrence. Absolutely. If we can start looking at reducing risk of recurrence, then we're certainly doing something right. Josh, the best study for 2023, don't keep us on tenterhooks anymore. Please let us know. We know it's an ADC, but what is our pick of the litter our gold medal winner for 2023. Michael, you're the gold medal winner. And also, I don't know if I can come after your eloquent presentation of the recent adjuvant study that you just did in breast cancer, in those high-risk breast cancer patients. So really, really well done. So number one, if we move to it, is EV302. This is the standing ovation. This is my ADC, my one and only love. One, no, <laughs> this is not my one and only love. This is one of my many loves, but from a cancer perspective, I love ADCs. Uh, this is a open-label randomized phase three study looking at infortimab vedotin, an a- antibody drug conjugate combined with immunotherapy, pembrolizumab versus standard of care chemotherapy in those that are previously untreated, locally advanced, or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. We only spoke about this somewhat recently at ESMO, but it's still amazing step forward in the paradigm of treating advanced bladder cancer. We know that 200,000 deaths occur annually, and it's a top 10 cancer diagnosis. The five-year survival rate hasn't really changed recently. Platinum chemotherapy is the first line and has been so for decades, and nothing has surpassed this. They use Avalumab as maintenance therapy with quite good efficacy, but all prior immunotherapy trials haven't really improved overall survival in this context. But here comes the contender, Enfortimab Vedotin, a Nectin-4-directed ADC with Pembrolizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, which have individually both demonstrated survival benefits in those with previously treated locally advanced or metastatic urothelial, aka bladder cancer. The question is, if you combine them, do you have a better outcome? So if we look at the EV302 trial, it was a one-to-one randomization of the intervention arm of the ADC plus immunotherapy versus chemotherapy. The primary endpoint, they were dual, so progression-free survival and overall survival, and the secondary endpoints were objective response rate and safety. So really, really cool. Enfortimab uh, vedotin was given day one and day eight, and immunotherapy pembrolizumab was given 
as immunotherapy is always given. The demographics were balanced, predominantly male. PD-1 expression was found in 58% with a combined positive score of at least 10% and 78% had visceral metastases. Looking at the disposition when this was presented, 33% were still on the combination arm and they were continuing on this until progression. Chemo was only given for six cycles and then stopped as a general rule in the control arm. And those that completed treatment was 1.8% in the intervention arm, but that's because there was an ongoing versus 55% in the control arm. They found progressive disease in 34% of the intervention arm and 16% of that control arm. Looking at the Endpoints though, progression-free survival showed a hazard ratio of 0.45, so that was 55% more effective than the standard of care, with a median progression-free survival that doubled from 6.3 months to 12.5 months. At 18 months, uh, 43% was still had no progression versus 11% in that control panel. So really, really control panel, control arm, really, really good stats. So subgroup analysis benefited patients irregardless of pd one once again proving that PD-1 expression doesn't always correlate to better outcomes, um, platinum eligibility, or visceral metastases. Looking at overall survival, this is the first time it has beat chemotherapy. So there was a 53% reduction in the risk of death with a hazard ratio of 0.47. You saw that whether they were in cisplatin eligible or cisplatin ineligible. As expected, the cisplatin ineligible arm, there was a wider Kaplan-My curve. So that hazard ratio was 0.43, likely because those that have cisplatin, that's the standard of care. That's the best chemotherapy for this, uh, for this cancer type. Confirmed overall response rate was, again, better in the intervention arm, 67.7 versus 44.4%. And you even saw a complete response of like nearly 30% in the intervention arm, Mikey. Adverse events, actually relatively similar. So 66 versus 70%, 70%, which was higher in the control arm. Hematological malignancy is more prominent in chemotherapy and in the intervention arm, peripheral neuropathy, rash, hyperglycemia, and there were four treatment-related deaths in both arms. So, Michael, that's a, that's a whirlwind. And I think, you know, the important thing to say, it's, it's the standard of care. You know, that's the standing ovation of the year, in my opinion. That's the ADC that took us to the higher plane of existence. And certainly uh, informed the name of our new podcasting production company which is ADC Productions, because we just can't let that joke lie. No. Nope. But I, I agree with you, Josh, for, uh, for need, for commonality of cancer cases, I think EV302 is our winner for 2023. Michael, what are we doing next week? Well, Josh, I was actually hoping you would ask, answer that because um, I think you are a better place to preview our upcoming very exciting series detailing your grand adventures in America. We've already previewed this, I guess, with uh, our San Antonio Breast Symposium episodes, but you got up to a lot more than gallivanting in the Texan desert. I did, I did. I also got lost in the industrial complexes of Texas, which I ran away very quickly to find a coffee. <laughs> Though, <laughs> you, can take, the, you can take the boy out of Melbourne, but you can't take the Melbourne out of the boy. But then as soon as you could, you you ran north. That's it. That's it. And um, I had, don't have an addiction, I promise you. I can stop any moment I want. But you don't want. <laughs> no. So we have a series of 
specialists. Uh, what I've done with help of Michael and a couple of my colleagues is international renowned practice changing oncologists that we will be releasing weekly for the next seven weeks, talking about how they got to where they are, looking at different aspects of the medical oncology world. And these are people who I don't want to give too much away that have changed the lives of thousands of patients and their families and will continue to do so and essentially have changed the landscape of medical oncology as we know it. It's an exceptionally exciting series. Uh, Josh has had a tremendous opportunity to interview some of the biggest names in oncology worldwide. And amazingly, they're all clustered around the Dana-Farber Institute in Boston for some reason. Maybe it's the weather. Or maybe the the Dana-Farber is just the crucible of oncology. Anyway, this and many more questions will be answered in our upcoming series. It is a great start to 2024. Thank you so much for joining us for the start of this season two. And we hope to see you again next time. See you then, Michael. We're going to work on that thesaurus. Yep. It'll get better. We promise. (laughs) Maybe. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find links to the rest of our episodes on our website, inquisitiveonc.com. There you will also find a collection of weekly blog posts, useful resources, as well as links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. This is Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ADC Productions.